If you have a Bible there, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. I can hear the rustling of keypads more than I can pages these days. Acts chapter 8. I had a really, really good message ready that I wanted to preach this morning. It's, it's really good. It's really good. Um, got some great stories thrown in there, some great analogies. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, but I made the mistake of having a shower this morning. And when I have a shower, sometimes God speaks to me. So I want to change my tact a little bit here this morning from what I had written down and hopefully by the end of this it'll make some sense to you and hopefully by the end of it you'll get something out of it. You know, I look at the world at the moment and everything that's going on in the world and there's a lot of things going on in the world in which we live in and not a lot of things are necessarily good. A lot of things are probably more on the bad side However, while I don't agree, let me, let me say this, while I do not agree with what's happening religiously in the world right now, and that is there's an outbreak of militant Islam. shouldn't say that word, probably going to get in trouble for it if someone reads the podca- listens to the podcast, but... Uh, not all Muslims are bad, I'm not saying that. Uh, John Laws on his morning show, those of you that happen to hear him, makes the statement, he says, not all Muslims are terrorists. But, unfortunately, most terrorists are Muslims. And I'd probably adhere to that. While I don't adhere to or agree with what people are doing, strapping bombs to themselves and driving cars into buildings these militants who believe they're doing God a favour by wiping out infidels and by trying to get everybody to convert to their philosophy and their way of thinking. I do not agree in the slightest with what's going on. But when I look at the global picture, I ask questions a lot of God. I try to look at the big canvas and go, God, what's happening? What's happening here? Because God is in control of human history. Amen? Amen. God has a bigger view of the world than what we do. He sees the beginning of the book to the end of the book. He knows page one. He knows the reference page at the end, which when you go through it, points you back to certain pages and helps make sense where things came from and so on. And so I'm asking God this question and I'm going, God, what's going on? There's this outbreak and and you read statistics and books and people will tell you that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world and uh, it's actually not, but you'll read that in books and you'll read how um, certain nations are, are being overrun politically and all this stuff. What I do believe is happening that's being highlighted to society out of what we're seeing is this, that Faith is being reconnected with passion. Okay? Faith is being reconnected with passion. And I think that's a good thing. I'm not saying what we're seeing or the way it's being expressed is good. What I'm saying is it's good to see faith 
being reconnected with passion. Because if we've got something that we want to communicate to the world, and if we want the world to listen to us, and if we want the world to believe that we have the way, the truth, and the life, I often wonder whether when they look at me and they look at the church in the West, are we passionate enough about what we believe that it gets their attention? Are we passionate enough about it? Is there a connection between our belief and passion? How passionate are we for the message of the cross? How passionate are we? I remember being in India years and years ago and we moved over there and we were doing missions work and a young man in this Muslim colony in which we lived called us over to their house and they were all, all only white family, first white family had ever lived there and of course everybody wants to know what are you doing? And I remember this one man and his family calling us over to their house and we went to their house and we sat in their lounge room and they bought us out you know, biscuits and tea, <coughs> things like that. And one of the men in there turned to me straight away and he looked me in the eye and str- <laughs> straight away just looked me in the eye, pointed his finger at me and said, what are you propagating? That was his word to me. What are you propagating? And here I am in the middle of this Muslim community uh, thinking, how do I answer that? <laughs> what do I say? I'm in your house. I don't know who you are, what you may do to me, what your connections are. And then one of the men shared this story with me. He said this. He said, some years ago, I went to a Muslim prophet. And the prophet told me this. He said, you're going to contract cancer. It's going to happen at a time when you can't get to your mother. Now, if you understand the context of, of Indian culture, men are mummy's boys. They get married, bring their wife in to live with their mum and dad, and mum's the dominant. It sort of comes across the other way. that It's male-dominated in some ways it is, but in a lot of ways, women have a lot of power in that country. And so this Muslim prophet says to him, you're going to contract cancer at a time when your mother can't get to you. Some months later, he's on a trip to Mumbai and he gets there, feels some pains in his body, goes to a doctor. Doctor says, runs some tests and they go, I'm sorry, but you've contracted cancer. Gets on the phone, he rings his mother and says, Mum, please, can you come? And for unforeseen circumstances, she had to say to him, I can't get there. There's no way I can get to you, I'm sorry. I have to see you when you come back to town. And he remembered what this Muslim prophet had spoken over him. This is what's going to happen to you. So he went back to the Muslim prophet when he came back to town and said, guess what, this happened. The Muslim prophet said, no worries, we'll take you to the Muslim priest. He'll pray for you. Took him to a Muslim priest and the Muslim priest laid hands on him, prayed for him. Went back to the doctor, he was cured of his cancer. I don't want to get into the ins and outs of how that works. I guess my basic general theory is if the devil puts something on, you can take it off. But then he looked me in the eye. He stopped after telling me that story and he just stared blankly at me. And I could tell what he was saying. What he was saying to me was, this is my God. This is how real my God is. This is what my God, my God speaks. My God forewarns me. My God heals. What are you propagating? I felt in that moment it was a challenge of his God versus my God. 
But while I can't make anything miraculously happen in front of him in that situation, there was a deeper challenge than that. I looked at this man who was passionate about what he believed. So passionate, in fact, that he listened to the words of the prophet. So passionate, in fact, that when the words of the prophet came to pass, he didn't just drift through life forgetting. No, no, he was aware of it. So passionate that he went back and said, what do I do? So passionate that he went to a priest and submitted himself under that priest and allowed that priest to lay hands on him and pray for him. He was a man that was passionate about what he believed. And if I was going to expect a person like that to start following Jesus, then doesn't it make sense that I've got to at least be on that level of passion and faith, at least be on that level. Otherwise, why would you think that what I've got is more greater than what you've got? And I wonder sometimes with Christianity in general, and I'm picking on the Western Christian church because that's my location right now and that's what I live in and what I look around and see. And sometimes I wonder whether We've bought into some things, maybe, maybe some doctrines or some teachings that have kind of really placed us at the centre and God on that peripheral as kind of our servant as opposed to God in the centre and us being his instruments and so on. And maybe that's created a bit of a... passionless sense of faith. God's good. He'll just do whatever. He'll look after me. He'll... Sometimes we take the blessings of God for granted. Sometimes we uh, presume upon God that because we're Christians, he'll just do and be. And you know, I wonder whether God has as many people devoted to him as he does interested in him. I wonder if he has as many true friends as he does fair-weather friends. When times are good, We'll press in and... You know, one thing, I've, one thing I've learnt in my life is that my faith matters the most in the valleys, not the mountaintops. Now, I can stand on top of the mountains and have experiences with God. They don't shape me, mould me anywhere near the experiences and encounters I have when I'm in the valley. You know, I've been to a lot of camps and conferences and things like that and had amazing moments and great highs. Uh, I can remember a couple of them, not too many. I've had a lot of moments where I've been right down there in the valley and I've managed to maintain my faith and press into God and God's come through. And they're the moments that I can remember clear as a bell. I could tell you where I was standing, um, what I was doing, what I was feeling, what God did. I remember years and years ago being in a conference and I was in one of the lowest parts of my life. I, I'd gotten to the bottom with all kinds of stuff going on. And I remember being in a worship conference and uh, worship meeting, sorry, and people were worshipping. And I remember kneeling down on the ground with tears in my eyes and, and knowing, knowing that Jesus walked in the back left-hand corner of the room. He walked in and I saw him in my spirit. I don't know how, but I knew where he was. He walked in and he walked through this crowd. There was about 200, 300 people there all worshipping God. And he walked in and it's like he's looking, nah, nah, and he walked around like this and he saw me. And he walked over to me and he knelt down, he put his hands on my shoulders and he said to me these words, he said, you're all right, Al. You're all right, Al. I remember that. I was in a deep, deep valley, real tough place. I never forgot that moment where God came to me in that valley. And I think genuine faith and genuine passion is displayed when we're down in the valleys. And by passion, I'm not talking about hyper, you know. We can manufacture emotional passion. I'm not talking about emotional passion where we all just look at. I'm talking about the kind of passion that steals its feet 
in the Word of God that steals itself and positions itself in God. Not just when we're on top of that mountain with a thousand people praising God, but when we're down in the middle of that valley standing there all by ourselves, when life just looks like there's nowhere to go and we can't even see the sunshine because of the trees and the canopy. And I'm looking at what's going on in the world at the moment and, and I can see that, like I said, I don't agree with what they're doing, but when I see these, what the lengths that some of these people will go to, and in their minds, they're kind of connecting it to their faith or their belief or their religion or whatever. Whether I believe they're genuine or not, I'm looking at it and I feel like the world is going, these guys are passionate. Look how passionate these guys are about what they believe. And then I turn the mirror back on myself and I go, well, what are my friends and my family and my children and my church, when, when people look at me, what do they think about me? Would they say I'm passionate about my God? Would they say I'm devoted? committed to my God? Or would they still go, he's, just, he's really interested in that Jesus thing, isn't he? He's really interested in that Jesus thing. In Acts chapter 8, there's an interesting story going on. A great persecution breaks out. Stephen, one of the uh, disciples, is stoned. And I don't mean drugged up, I mean physically, literally stoned for his faith because he wouldn't bow down to lies. He was so passionate about the truth that he was prepared to die for that truth. And he preaches to the religious leaders and he just tells them this is how it is. And they get angry with him and they kill him. And look at what happens after the persecution, the death of Stephen. It says in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. It says, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine right now. You got out of bed this morning. You made your breakfast. Right? You jumped in your car, you had a shower, not in your car, you probably had a shower before you jumped in your car. But point being, you had a shower, you got dressed up, you jumped in your car, you drove to church. You came here, you sat down, you worshipped, we had announcements. We had a great communion, we went over there, we had morning tea. I want you to imagine that before the end of this service, somebody comes running in and says, the government has decreed that you guys are an illegal cult group. You're an illegal sect. And a guy walks up to the front here, points a gun at me and says, all you need to do is denounce it and you can go home. And what if I stood and looked him in the eye and said, you know what, it doesn't matter whether I denounce it or not. Denouncing the reality of God would be like saying to you, the sun won't come up tomorrow. It doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter what I think, the fact remains the sun will rise tomorrow whether you believe it or not, and God is real whether you believe it or not. And imagine they pulled a trigger and then turned around and said, same's going to happen to all of you. There's just been a decree passed in Parliament that you're all illegal. And we're coming after you. And you scattered, you bolted home, knowing that there's going to be a parade of soldiers down the street, people knocking on your door, and they're going to take you out, chuck you in a cage, and they're going to literally take your life, your wife, your children, your they're going to kill you. This is what, exactly what's happening here. It says a persecution broke out that day, that very moment. Everything was sweet and calm, and they were going through the motions, and in one moment, the entire world was changed, for these believers. That's exactly what we're reading here. And the Bible says that they scattered. 
Everybody scattered except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody else took off. Everybody took off. Let me ask you a question. What would you do in that situation? How would you feel towards God? You just lost your home. You might have just paid it off the week before, went into the bank and paid the very last sum of money on that home. Finally paid it off. Living the dream now. And the next weekend you're running from that house with only what you can chuck on your back. Because if you don't, they're going to take you away and they're going to end your life. How would you feel towards God? Would that be fair? Would we be frustrated? Would we go, hang on a second, where's the great Pentecostal dream in this? God, I thought I came to you. You would give, 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 give. And now I'm just about to lose everything. This, this really happened to a bunch of people. And they took off and watch what happened. It says, all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Verse 3. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. That just makes no sense. You've just had your home ripped out from underneath you. Your livelihood taken away. You've just had to flee with nothing but the clothes on your back. And the first thing they think of when they get to a new group of people is we're going to tell them about Jesus. I reckon that's pretty passionate. I find that challenging. If I put myself in that story, what would I do? I'll tell you what, there's a myriad of things that I could do and I'd have every right to do. I'd probably have every right to grumble and complain. That's a big situation. They've probably got every right to whinge and complain against God and, you know, this was not in the brochure type thing. They could have been negative. They could have run away and, and, and gone, look, let's not talk about this thing anymore. Look what happened to us when we joined this group. I'm not going to go to another city and risk it happening again. Let's just drop this Jesus thing. Let's just get rid of it. It's just it's too hard. It's not what it was cracked up to be. They had every right to be bitter and twisted about what had happened, but they didn't. They went and started preaching the gospel to people. I mean, that's commitment. That's passion. That's a a people that are so grounded in their faith. That situation is about as deep a valley as you're going to find. That's a deep valley. That's a, a, a valley so deep and a channel so narrow that the trees have joined over the top. You can't even see sunlight in that. Instead of running to a grumbling, whinging, complaining place, something inside of them said, you know what, we may have been displaced, but we will just simply take this as an opportunity to get that message further out there and tell people about Jesus. And I find an incredible challenge in that. What would I do? Would I be able to do that? I don't know that I would be able to do that. I hope 
that I would. I hope that I would. But here's the thing. If you go on from there, jump over the page to Acts chapter 11. And verse 19, it says this. It says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death. So now we're going to talk about that group of people that took off. Okay? It says, Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. Go on to the next verse for me, please. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. So they go out to Antioch and they're preaching about Jesus in Antioch. Now, move the story along a little bit to verse 26. So this church is planted in Antioch. Barnabas sees it. It's thriving. He goes and he grabs Paul. And he says to Paul, come with me to Antioch and let's check out this new church that's been started. Not by the apostles, started by these believers who were scattered. They go, they find the church, they find a good group of people and the Bible says for the next 12 months they stayed there and they taught in this church. But what's interesting is this. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church a full year, teaching large crowds of people. Watch this. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. This is the first time that the community, they didn't call themselves Christians. It wasn't a tag they gave themselves. It was a label that came from a pagan society in which they were. Now, what was it? What are they looking at? Why why has this not happened before? Why is it just now at this point in the history of the church that these pagan people are looking at them and going, these guys are Christians? The word Christian is the Greek word Christianos. It literally means follower of Jesus, follower of Christ. Literally means follower of Christ. Why has it taken up until this point for somebody to go, they're genuine, genuine followers of Christ? I wonder, I wonder whether it was because when the people saw their faith in the midst of the valley, when those around them saw this group of people that had been displaced, you see, they weren't called Christians after they healed the sick. Jesus did that, but that wasn't the connection that the world made. They weren't called Jesus when they started getting together in big groups, and uh, uh, Christians, sorry, or when they spoke in tongues. Nothing along the journey so far made the pagan world around them go, oh, we're going to call them followers of Christ. They were called a sect. They were called the way. They were called all different things, but nobody had pinpointed gone, these are Jesus' people. These are Jesus' followers. There's a definite connection. And what is it? It happens first in Antioch. It happens after they've gone through this incredible persecution and run out of town and instead of shutting up, gone, no, no, we are going to continue to press on. And I wonder if the people around them made the connection because everybody would have known about this Jesus guy. He was so passionate about what he believed that this idiot hung on a cross and allowed the Romans to kill him. This is how passionate this Jesus guy was. He was so passionate about what he believed, whether we believe it or not, but he was so passionate about it. Look at the lengths to which he went to hang on to that belief. They even killed him and he still would not denounce it. Now here's a group of people totally displaced, running out of their city, being killed and murdered, and they still won't stop talking about this Jesus character. I wonder whether it was the connection of the fact of what their faith looked like and how they carried themselves in a valley that made the world look and take notice and go, these guys are Jesus followers. It's, it's so easy to be on top of the mountain 
and be excited when miracles are happening and all the prayers are being answered and everything. But when we're down in that valley, that's really, in my opinion, and from what I see in the Word of God, that's when it counts the most. How do you hold yourself? How do you position yourself in God when you're going through the toughest of the toughest times? That's the kind of faith that changes a community. That's the kind of faith that a nation looks at and goes, there's something about these people. That's the kind of faith that causes these people in Antioch to go, this group of people here, man, they've got to be followers of Jesus. Because Jesus was exactly like that. He went to the grave when other people mocked him, criticised him and so on. He hung on to his belief and he went to the grave with it. And he didn't flinch, he didn't turn to the left, to the right. He kept his feet there, he positioned himself and he followed through with the will of the Father. That's what he did. It wouldn't have felt good. It wouldn't have been great. You know that he stood there in Gethsemane and he prayed with droplets of blood dripping off him. Going, Father, if there's any possible way that we can do this any other way, any other way, I'm up for it. I'm up for it. Because I'm stressed out now and I know what's coming. I know what's coming. But he bowed his will and said, but it's not about what I want. Father, it's your will. And if this is what has to happen, I am not going to waver in my faith. I'm not going to grumble, complain, whinge. God, I'm going to take this faith to the grave. That's passion. That's passion. You know, it grieves my heart to see people that, you know, and I've, I've, I've done it myself. I kick my toe, you know kick my toe on the side of a cupboard and then all of a sudden I feel like God's left me. Oh God, why didn't you? Oh God, you should have. You know? Yet there are people all around the world facing literal death for their faith. And they stick to it and they hold it and they're steadfast about that. In, in, in Matthew five sixteen, I think it is, Jesus makes this statement to the crowds. He says this, he says, let your light shine among men. Have you, you heard that verse? In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Let your good deeds shine. When does something shine? Generally in the darkness. Things generally tend to shine brighter in the darkness. When we're going through those valley times, what do we do? How do we hold ourselves? Because I think it's at those lowest points where people look at us and go, okay, you're a Christian, let's see. Let's see. You had a good morning at church, you're all excited and you want to talk to me about God, yeah, that's fine. But now I know you're going through, let's see how you handle it. Let's see where your God is in the midst of this. See how serious you are about your faith. I watched a movie the other night, Hacksaw Ridge. Anyone seen that? What an amazing film. And that scene sort of towards the end there where he's on top of the ridge. What's his name? Don, what was his name? can't remember his name. And he's on top of the ridge, Hacksaw Ridge, and the whole army retreats and he's running back to try to climb down. True story. Desmond, Desmond Doss, Desmond Doss. And everybody climbs down and he's running back and he sees these People blown to bits and shot and everything. And he's at the top of the ridge and all he has to do is climb down. He sits there and he's got tears in his eyes. Tears in his eyes. And he turns and looks up to God and he says, God, what do you want me to do? 
what do you want me to do? I know what I'd want to do if I was him. I'd be straight down that thing. I'd be gone. He says, what do you want me to do? And then all of a sudden his eyes light up. And he says, okay, God, just give me one more. And he runs back into the battle and he grabs these soldiers that have been shot and wounded and lying there. And he starts dragging them to the edge of the ridge and he ties them to a rope and he lowers them down, one after the other. And he does it all night. Gunfire, Japanese walking around with their guns and he's just hiding and he grabs one. In the midst of a deep, dark valley, he's still saying to God, okay, God, what what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Because, God, I'm not going to assume that, you know, there shouldn't be any valleys in my life. God, I'm not going to get bitter and twisted and angry at you, Lord, because I'm where I am and what I'm looking at, God. God, what do you want me to do? It's easy to stand on top of a mountain when everything's lined up and, hey, God, what do you want me to do, Lord? When we're down in that valley, can we still lift our eyes up and say to God, what do you want me to do? See, I think that's passionate spirituality. I think that is passionate spirituality. And I think the world is being reawakened to a passionate form of spirituality. They don't want a deadpan religion, whether it's Islam, Christianity, Buddhism. It doesn't matter. They don't want that. They want passionate spirituality. And I want to leave you with this question, this thought. This is the question that's running around in my head that I'm asking myself. When I sit down, if I ask my wife, what do you see in me? If I ask my kids, what what do you see in me? Do you see a man that's committed to God? I mean, regardless of whether things are going perfect for me or not, whether things are lining up, do you see a man that's really committed to his faith? Do you see a man that if I told you about God, you would listen to me because you know I believe it? Or do you just see a man who's kind of interested in God? Do you listen to me like I'm somebody that knows what they're talking about or somebody who's just wikipedia religion and found a few of the main basic points? Finishing up, I just want to read one more verse. James 1, 2 to 4. This other message, by the way, is really good, this other one that I've got here, but we might get to it another day. James 1, 2-4 says this. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. You don't often hear the word great joy and troubles linked together, do you? Yeah, James says, when troubles of any kind come, consider it an opportunity. This is an opportunity God is giving you. It's an opportunity. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. Next verse. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And that's what valleys are really about. That's what tough times are about. How much endurance do we have? What's the breaking point? Because I'll tell you this from my own experience. If there's a breaking point, the devil, if he knows how far to push you to snap you, he'll push you there. He'll push you there. The church got off the ground because it didn't work. They devoted their lives to God and they would go the distance and they would do whatever they needed to do and they would die and did die 
for their faith. And I think when the world looks at us, the church in the West, are they seeing a bunch of people who would die for their faith? Are they seeing a bunch of people who on top of the valleys and in the bottom of the mountains can lift their hands and say, my God is a good God? Or are they seeing a bunch of fair-weather friends? One day we love him and the next day we're not so sure and one day we're committed and the next day we're interested. See, I'm passionate about this because I genuinely believe that God wants to do something in a Western church. I believe that it's time that there was another awakening. And I'm not talking about laughing and falling over backwards and all that stuff. I'm talking about a genuine, genuine, passionate awakening in the hearts of people where we will take a stand for things because there's coming a time where the world will no longer tolerate and we're already there. They no longer tolerate. If you have a different opinion to me, we no longer tolerate that. We need to be correct and politically correct and these people can talk about all this stuff, but as believers, the, the tide is turning and we are now beginning to be persecuted because we actually have a set of values and a set of beliefs that don't just encompass anything and say anything's, anything's acceptable. And if we're not solid in this conviction of our faith, if we're not devoted and we're just interested, we're going to one by one just fall over. We'll cross that line ourselves. And before you know it, our witness will be so weakened and so watered down that nobody's going to listen to us. We've got to get serious about some of this stuff. Amen? Anyway, like I said, sometimes I picked up a, a bucket of kumquats and I threw kumquats and squashes out today and some messages are ice cream and they're beautiful and some are more vegetables. And if you're like me, I don't like vegetables at all, but every now and then it's good for me to have some veggies. So I've thrown some veggies at you today and I pray that you would take what we've talked about. I pray that you'd think about that. I just pray that you would mull over that this week in your own spirit. You'd examine your own life. Have a look at your own life. Ask yourself that, that question. When, when my workmates, when my teammates, when my family, my children, my wife, my husband, when they look at me, do they, would they genuinely see a person that would, is devoted to their faith or do they see someone who's kind of still not quite made his mind up? See, God uses devoted people. Read the book of Acts. People who are just interested, God sits back and waits for devotion. He wants to build on a foundation that's going to stand, not one that's going, well, hang on, I don't know if I want to, I'm not sure yet. He tells me to count the cost before I do things. He counts the cost too. Father, I want to thank you for today, Lord. And uh, God, nobody likes vegetables and I am the number one person in this room who would say vegetables were of the devil. They were not in the garden before the fall. But God, I'm sure they were. And uh, Lord, I, I, I just pray, uh, Holy Spirit, just in our hearts, Lord, just help us understand the spirit of what's being said today. Help us to interpret it, uh, God, in a way that we, can, we get it. Each person gets it. Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, you would take uh, any of the seeds today and you would water them, germinate them in our hearts. Father, we want to be a community of people that are ready when you call upon your church, God. We want to be a community of people that are not just interested, God. We don't just want to play some stupid spiritual Christian interest game. God, I want the world out there to look at me as an individual. I want the community around here to look at Arise Church and go, these guys are serious about what they believe. These guys are unshakable in their faith. They're unwavering in their faith. These guys are genuine Christians. These guys are genuine followers of Jesus. That's my heart. That's my prayer. And I'm sure it is the heart and prayer of, of all of us in this room as well this morning, God. So we just lift that up to you. God, I pray that you would watch over us this week. And this week, God, give us opportunities to share your goodness with somebody that does not know you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, God bless you.